The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is such a privilege and honor to welcome Dr. Harold Goldstein. He is the Executive Director of the California Center for Public Health Advocacy. And he founded this organization, but it is nationally recognized for its work looking at public policies to address the social, economic, and community conditions that perpetrate the obesity epidemic. The California Center for Public Health Advocacy has led statewide campaigns, resulting in the enactment of state laws getting soda and junk food out of schools, securing first-ever funding for school physical education, establishing the nation's first state menu labeling law, and defining access to water as a basic human right. Dr. Goldstein holds a bachelor's degree in physiology from the University of California in Berkeley and both master's and doctorate degrees in public health from the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Goldstein, welcome. Oh, Melinda, what a delight to be with you. I should let our listeners know that we met a long time ago. It was in 2001, and it was the day before 9-11. We had brought you to the University of Missouri to speak about childhood obesity, and we are still talking about it all these years later. And I was so happy to run into you at the Healthy Beverage Expo in Long Beach, California, in May of 2014, where you gave a talk titled, A Need to Know, A Right to Know, The Logic Behind Warning Labels for Sugary Beverages. So let's step back and let me just ask you, you know, how you got to where you are today. What was it that led you from a degree in physiology to a focus on public health? It's a great question. Early in my career, I was working in in Los Angeles County, and I met someone there who had been studying. So this was probably 1990 or so. I was talking 25 years ago, and there was a researcher there who was looking at childhood obesity rates in a town in East Los Angeles, and he found that 30 to 40 percent of the kids in this particular school district, kids in grades 5, 6, 7, that 30 to 40 percent of these kids were overweight. And no one had ever in those days been talking about childhood obesity, and I realized, my gosh, if this number of kids are overweight, what that means about the long-term health and well-being of this generation was going to be startling. And it was the first I heard about childhood obesity. And as I started reading more and talking more and more to people about the issue, I realized that this really was the public health issue of our time. And so when I had the opportunity to start our center, um, we chose to focus specifically on that because we're concerned about preventable illness and increasing life expectancy for our kids. And if we want to have this generation and future generations to live long and healthy and productive lives, most important is making sure they're eating well and exercising and that they're not overweight. And now, 25 years later, the problem isn't just about overweight and obesity, those are really risk factors. Those risk factors have now been around so long that 
diabetes among kids and adolescents is skyrocketing. So we've really progressed a lot over the last 25 years. We've made some positive gains, and we can talk some more about the impact of getting soda and junk food out of schools, for example. Uh, but there's so much more that needs to be done, so much more that the problem has gotten all the worse because the risk factor of obesity has now turned into skyrocketing rates of diabetes among kids and even adolescents. Yeah, and we are both of that age where we remember where type 2 diabetes was called adult-onset diabetes, and we never saw it among children. And boy, haven't things changed over the past couple of decades. And so we think about all of those public health implications of that high blood sugar diabetes, kidney failure, blindness, infection rates increased, and we think, oh, my gosh, we can't afford this level of illness, and we've got to step in and make a change. And yet, I'm sure you are just as surprised as I am that there are corporations driven by profit over public health at all cost, especially yeah, without, when we, we look at our children, right? What could yep. be more valuable? Absolutely, without question. I mean, the, the numbers that, that have blown me away the most is that there are now a quarter of teenagers in the United States who have diabetes or prediabetes. The numbers doubled over just the last 10 years. And yet, we just released a study on cost. You mentioned cost. A third of everyone in California hospitals today has diabetes. 43% of Latinos, 40% of African Americans and Asians in California hospitals on any given day have diabetes. Diabetes, rising rates of diabetes, is the leading cause of higher health care costs in the United States. So if we want to bend the curve on health care costs, the single most important thing that we can do is reduce diabetes rates. And yet, as you're describing, there are major corporations who are making big bucks pretty much giving people diabetes, and the beverage industry is really at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. And the beverage industry likes to give presentations to the Dietetic Association and kind of uh, have this rosy persona of, hey, you know, we're all about fitness. We're all about getting more <laughs> exercise, right? As if to say that you could possibly burn off the calories in one of these 20-ounce sodas in one day. I think we need a reality check here, right? Yeah, if you weigh 100 pounds, it takes you an hour and 15 minutes to burn off, to um, jog off the calories in a 20-ounce beverage. You know, I think most people really have no idea how really harmful these sugary drinks are. In some ways, this is new information. I feel like we're in 1965 around tobacco. People know, oh, these products aren't great for you. But I don't know that most people know that these products lead directly to diabetes. There is overwhelming science now that liquid sugar is a unique driver in today's skyrocketing diabetes epidemic. Just drink two sodas a day for two weeks, and your LDL cholesterol, your bad cholesterol, in just two weeks goes up 20%. Drink two sodas a day for six months, and the amount of fat in your liver goes up 150%. So mm-hmm. it's got a lot of sugar, and yeah, it adds to calories, but even more than that, it's not just a bunch of empty calories, and it is, but that liquid sugar, because we absorb it so quickly, wears out our pancreas, and at the same time, forces the liver to turn a bunch of that sugar into fat, 
directly causing fatty liver disease, and that combination of burned-out pancreas and fatty liver is what causes diabetes. And here we've got, I mean, in California, uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters of teens drink a soda or more a day, a sugary drink or more a day. The equivalent of injecting 16 teaspoons of sugar right into their veins is it any surprise that almost a quarter of them now have diabetes or prediabetes. Yeah, and I think we really need to emphasize what you just said. 16 teaspoons of sugar in a 20-ounce soda. And just to help our listeners put that into perspective, and I'm going to pull one of the recommendations out of the hat from the American Heart Association, who recommends no more than six added teaspoons for women and no more than nine added teaspoons for men. And even if you were to double that, I mean, you, you start seeing that these really aren't part of a healthy diet, which is another message that we get from the media, right? Like, Sure, you can have these sugary beverages. They can be part of a healthy diet, just like sugary cereals, right? Mothers were told that about sugary cereals and their kids. They're not part of a healthy diet, and they can't be. And if our listeners want any of these great statistics that you have shared with us, the kick the can component on your website is really excellent. Right, now, yeah, so people, people can go to kickthecan.info. It's got everything you want to know about sugary drinks, and they're linked to obesity, diabetes, tooth decay. This stuff, like you're saying, Linda, this stuff's really bad for you. It's not just, mm, you know, something you you should uh, drink every once in a while. This stuff is really bad for you. You know, we need to get that word out that when your kids are drinking these sugary beverages, whether it's Coke and Pepsi, carbonated sweetened beverages, whether it's sports drinks, vitamin waters, all these juicy juices that sure sound like they're healthy, that when your kids are drinking that stuff, you're putting them on a path directly to diabetes. That's right. And schools are irresponsible if they have those soda machines in their schools, in my opinion. You and I, as I mentioned earlier, we've we've been doing this work for decades. So we sort of have a little bit of a history. And I remember when the American Academy of Pediatrics first came out with their recommendations that these sugar-sweetened beverages should not be available in schools. And I remember going to the school board with this data thinking, this is all we need. We've got, we've got a, a, a statement, a policy statement from a physician's group. And the schools were so hungry for the dollars that those contracts brought in that those machines stayed there. So how was it that California was successful in getting those beverages out of schools? Well, it, it took us six years, full-time, six years to get sodas and junk food out of California schools starting in 1999. Finally, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger signed the bills in 2005. I was just looking at the data um, not long ago, and the childhood obesity rates were increasing steadily over time, and they peaked. They began going down in 2005, the same year that soda and junk food were taken out of schools. We actually bent the curve. And if you think about it, If even half of all kids were drinking a can of soda a day, 200 calories, if they went from drinking that 200 calories to not drinking that 200 calories, that that is the childhood obesity epidemic right there. Uh, I think uh, often people think that obesity is a result of eating thousands of extra calories a day. The, The whole obesity epidemic in the United States, not just among kids but among adults, is a grand total of 278 calories per day. Of that 278 calories, 43% of those are new soda calories that people were consuming starting in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, So the simplest way 
to turn around the obesity and diabetes epidemic is if you're drinking all this liquid sugar, stop. Drink water instead. Does it matter that the sweetener is coming from high fructose corn syrup, do you think, rather than, say, cane sugar? You're probably familiar with the with the literature more so than I. Yeah. It, does it really make a difference, or is it just the sheer volume? So it's a somewhat complicated question. The, the simple answer to the question is no, it doesn't matter. The simple answer to the question is that this liquid sugar is uniquely harmful because it simultaneously wears out the pancreas over time and it forces the liver to convert sugar into fat. We absorb all this sugar in as little as 30 minutes. If you eat a candy bar, it takes hours to digest a candy bar. When you drink liquid sugar, it's absorbed so quickly that it overwhelms our physiological system. Mm. So for the longest time, we were saying there's no difference. And for the most part, there's no difference. And yet there's just a study that was released out of um, University of Southern California just a couple weeks ago that showed that the high fructose corn syrup that is commonly used in these beverages isn't exactly the same as what the beverage industry has been telling us. Here's the complicated part. Sucrose is a combination of, uh, usually sucrose, that's table sugar, is half fructose and half glucose. It's the fructose that is the sweeter of those two sugars. Well, it turns out that the beverage industry, unbeknownst to what they've been telling consumers all these years, hasn't been using high fructose corn syrup that's 50-50 glucose and fructose. They've been using stuff that's 60-40 fructose and glucose. That added fructose, it's the fructose that is turned into fat in the liver. So the fructose is sweeter, so the beverage industry is able to make their products sweeter without adding any calories to it, but they're also spiking it with fructose that is the particularly harmful part of the sugar molecule. Mm -hmm. So they're not exactly the same. They're both really bad, but it turns out that often the beverage industry is using a form of high fructose corn syrup that's even worse. Hmm. Now, listeners, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Harold Goldstein, Executive Director of the California Center for Public Health Advocacy. Now, you were recently in Long Beach, California at the Healthy Beverage Expo, and the title of your talk there was A Need to Know, Right to Know, The Logic Behind Warning Labels for Sugary Beverages. And you were talking then about Senate Bill 1000, which unfortunately failed. But what that bill would have done is require health warning labels on sugar-sweetened beverages sold in California. My take from what I got from your website is that the majority of Californians seem to want those labels. What happened? Well, it's true. 74% of California voters, a majority of Republicans, independents, Democrats, even Tea Party, 63% of folks who identify with the Tea Party um, support putting warning labels on sugary drinks. I mean, this is really a, a libertarian kind of policy. It's what America's all about. It's about transparency. It's about education. And it's about a consumer's right to know. There are reams of data. There's no unequivocal science showing the direct link between sugary drinks and diabetes, obesity, and tooth decay. 
And what this bill was about was making that information available, telling the truth about these beverages was by putting a simple warning label, just like on a, on a pack of cigarettes, on the front of every bottle and can that describes the harmful effects of these products, telling the truth, letting con- consumers decide, do they want to buy these or not? You know, I was at, at the park the other day, um, and a, a mom there with her, her child, like I was there with my son, she asked me what I did, and I told her about these sugary drinks. And she says, you know, I just don't let my, my kids drink that stuff. I make sure they drink this. And she pulls out a box of one of these little juicy juice things. And I turned it around, and I looked on the back. It was full of high fructose corn syrup. She had no idea. It had some name on it that sure sounded like juice, but really it was just a bunch of high fructose corn syrup. She would not be giving her kids those kinds of beverages. If there was a warning label on it that said, these products contribute directly to diabetes. Hmm. That's so interesting. I was just talking to a physician the other day who was talking about the overweight children that she sees, and she'll tell the mother, you know, take out sugary sweetened beverages, and they get it that soda is one of them. But just as you said, she did not realize that the sports drinks and the juice drinks that have all kinds of pictures of fruit on them actually may contain, what, 5% or 10% juice at most. Exactly. One of of the first um, hit pieces the beverage industry used going after SB1000 this year was a a 12-page list of the 500 beverages that would would be required to have warning labels. And at first, I was like, oh, my gosh, some some of them were a lie. They wouldn't wouldn't have required uh, because they were either 100% juice or they were milk products, things that wouldn't have been required to have warning labels. And then I realized, actually, they were making our exact point because no one knows that all of those beverages, that most of those beverages, have no juice. They're just a bunch of sugar or high fructose corn syrup. They were really making our point that consumers need to know that just because, like you're saying, uh, Melinda, that there's a, a picture of um, an apple on the front doesn't mean it's got a bunch of juice. A, a bunch of those don't have any juice at all, some of them just 5% or 10%. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your website is that you showed which representatives in California voted for, against, and those who didn't even show up to vote. So I think that, you know, you make it easy to be a citizen and to exert a little muscle of democracy and shame on those representatives who we are paying with our tax dollars who didn't vote in the best interest of children and shame on those who didn't even bother to show up. So I love your website for that, and I think you you really set a national model for what grassroots organizations can do in terms of just raising awareness is, is your representative working for you or are they working for, say, a corporation that's going to profit on the sale of whatever? Yeah, it, was, it was absolutely remarkable. And I, I'm guessing that your, uh, your listeners won't be surprised. But after all these years, I am still surprised by the power of money in influencing legislation. Mm-hmm. Here, here was the Assembly Health Committee. In California, and members who said over and over again, we acknowledge how big a problem the diabetes epidemic, but we don't think that providing information that we we think this is solving this problem is going to be about education, and yet they didn't support a bill that was specifically to provide parents and kids and teenagers with exactly the education and the information they need 
to be able to make a healthy choice if they want to. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this bill is all about. You know, you've got Pepsi-Cola who's got Beyonce on billboards all over the country um, under a tagline that says, live for today, as if our teenagers need more encouragement to live for today. And now you've got two-thirds of all teens drink one of these sugary drinks or more a day, and a quarter of them already have diabetes. What's going to happen when when these teens grow up? It's expected that um, half of teens of color, half of Latino and African-American teens, a third of all kids born in the year 2000, half of kids of color born in the year 2000 will have diabetes sometime in their lives. Mm-hmm. This is an epidemic. The status quo is not working. How bad does it have to get before we tell the truth about these beverages? Yeah, and you know, we have some strange bedfellows in this work, don't we? Where like the Department of Defense is concerned that our kids are, are not fit enough to join the service. And so if we're not compassionate enough to look at our kids and think we don't want them to be ill, we can also look at this issue from a homeland security perspective and say we need a healthy future to move forward and reach our full potential. So, yeah, more power to your organization for lifting the veil on some of these issues. Well, I want to ask one question about the warning label. I think that in terms of the of the young mom that you met in the park, the warning label certainly would have been an aha moment. But you are probably more familiar with the tobacco literature than I am. But do warning labels work? There is no question at all that warning labels work. There was just a series of um, reports that came out um, a few months ago on the 50th anniversary of tobacco warning labels. You know, the Surgeon General's re- first Surgeon General's report on tobacco came out in 1964, and there was a, just a series of reports. It was reported in in all the major newspapers across the country under the headline that said, "Warning labels turn the tide on tobacco consumption." If you look at cigarette smoking rates in the United States. They peaked in 1965. What happened in 1965? That's when warning labels were put on. Warning labels serve a really important purpose. Is They identify a specific product that has a specific harm. Once that warning label was put on, consumption began going down immediately. Warning labels also, because consumption started going down, people started understanding the unique harm of cigarettes. It wasn't long, it was 10 years, 15 years, that tobacco taxes started being put on. A whole broad range of tobacco policies were then put in place. But what started the decline in cigarettes was warning labels. Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, let's also talk about taxes then, since there's certainly the tax rates vary on tobacco. We should talk about soda taxes. And uh, you explained before we got on the air that there are two cities now that are looking to institute a soda tax, San Francisco and what was the other one? And Berkeley. Berkeley. Okay, thank you. So do soda taxes work? So soda taxes work as well or at least we we have all the evidence in the world that they're going to work. And in fact, we now know from Mexico, which is the first country to to establish a soda tax, that they really do work. Consumption has been reported recently is down 4, 5, 6% in Mexico as a result of their soda tax. We are looking forward to San Francisco and Berkeley being the first cities in the country to establish soda taxes, and we'll prove firsthand that soda taxes do two things. One, they lower consumption, and two, they raise 
a significant amount of money to fund uh, desperately needed obesity and diabetes prevention programs. If we want our kids to be able to lead long and healthy lives, they need healthy food in schools, they need PE to burn off all those beverage calories, they need access to safe parks, they need after-school programs. It makes all the sense in the world to fund those obesity and diabetes prevention programs from a fee or a tax on the sugary drinks that are such enormous contributors to those problems to begin with. Mm-hmm. I want to let our listeners know that the vote in California was close on that warning label. So I anticipate, knowing you and your tenacity to promote public health, that your organization is going to go back and eventually we will have both warning labels and taxes, and all eyes are on California. California has, has led the nation. California led the nation on tobacco. We're helping to lead the nation on sugary drinks. And I certainly invite advocates from across the country to join us in advocating for warning labels in your states. We're starting a movement all over the country to tell the truth about sugary drinks and letting consumers decide whether once they have this information about the harmful effects, whether they still want to consume these products. And we'll let our listeners know that the website is www.publichealthadvocacy.org. And it is a marvelous website for learning all sorts of information that we've been talking about and more in, in terms of there's a whole section on grassroots organizing and what healthy, active, living cities look like. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, so let me just leave the floor open to you and say, is there anything that maybe we didn't cover that you'd like our listeners to know? What I want to underscore is that the beverage industry is spending billions of dollars a year trying to convince us and our kids that drinking all of this sugar makes you happy. They've got taglines like, as I said, live for today. Cokes is open happiness. When you open that bottle of of sugary beverage, you're not opening happiness. You're setting yourself on a course for opening a bottle of of insulin years from today. These products aren't making us happy. They're making us sick. When used as directed, these products are giving us diabetes. It's time to tell the truth about these products and turn around this diabetes epidemic. If we don't do that, we are headed for an ever bigger tsunami of diabetes that is going to drown us in healthcare costs by turning around the diabetes epidemic. By drinking water instead of sugar, we will all be a lot healthier. Our economy will be healthier. Our kids will be healthier. And Melinda, as you said, even our armed forces will be healthier. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. And just to let our listeners know again, we have been speaking with Dr. Harold Goldstein. He's the executive director of the California Center for Public Health Advocacy. He founded the organization in 1999. It is a nationally recognized leader in advocating for public policies to address the social, economic, and community conditions that perpetuate the obesity epidemic. The California Center for Public Health Advocacy has led statewide campaigns resulting in the enactment of state laws, getting soda and junk food out of schools, securing first-ever funding for school physical education, establishing the nation's first state menu labeling law, and defining access to water as a basic human right. 
Dr. Goldstein received his bachelor's degree in physiology from the University of California, Berkeley, and both master's and doctorate degrees in public health from UCLA. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for being my guest. The website, again, is publichealthadvocacy.org. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you for all of your great work for public health. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Goldstein. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 